Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hey, everybody, I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars, the show dedicated to helping you take your recordings to the next level. I interview professionals from all angles of the studio to get an inside view at what it takes to become a rock star of the recording studio yourself. I'm totally psyched to welcome today's guest. He is a Grammy Award-winning mixer, owner of the beautiful and newly relocated Sputnik Sound here in East or in uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, <laughs> in Berry Hill. <laughs> Almost got a typo there. I'm from East Nashville. Our guest is is not. Um, he has a long discography of accomplished records, including artists uh, and not limited to Keb Moe, Jars of Clay, Jack White, and Third Man Records, Buddy Guy, Kings of Leon. Danger Mouse, Sturgill Simpson, and some well-known local artists like Moon Taxi, Bobby Bear Jr., and Jeff the Brotherhood, who live right down the street from me, in fact, over in actual East Nashville there. Um, well, Jake uh, actually lives right down the street here. Oh, does it? Well, Jake I think lives over they in, moved. in Melrose. Okay, so maybe they're split. It lives in my neighborhood. Maybe Jamie the Brotherhood, there, it's across the river. It's kind of yeah. like, you know, the north-south thing. That's it's Jamie. the east-west thing. Yeah, it's a drummer. Our guest, whose voice you just heard, originally hails from the town of Joplin, Missouri, which most people often mistake as being named after the ragtime pianist Scott Joplin, but it was in fact named after its founder, the Reverend Joplin. And uh, other than being mentioned in Bobby Troop's legendary song, Route 66, the town of Joplin, Missouri, which gained most of its notoriety for mining zinc, may owe its biggest musical credit to our guest on today's show, I met him back in the early 2000s when he became head engineer for the incredible Blackbird Studios around the corner from here um, in the city of Berry Hill, which is a part of Nashville, often referred to as the New Music Row, with over 20 recording studios in a three-mile radius. What, how many? Was it more than that? We were number 50. Number 50. Excellent. Excellent. Wow. By the way. So, wait, are you still number 50 or do you like to uh, think no, of yourself no, as number we're, one now? We're 50, but there's now 51 being built down the street. Wow. I'm super honored to be here at Sputnik Sound for this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. Please welcome Vance Powell. Vance, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. I'm always ready to rock. Awesome, dude. Well, this is really exciting to be here. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me into your studio and allowing us- Glad you came over. To be here and talk to you. Um, I've given a little bit of an introduction. Would you like to tell us a little bit in your own words about who you are and and, uh, how you got to be here? Well, I'm a kid from a small town in Missouri who- uh, loved music and loved technology kind of all at the same time. My, my grandparents were, um, my gra- one of my grandfathers was an engineer in the, in the old sense. He was actually a engineer in the mines. He ran engines, very large engines. Really in, in the mines. zinc mines. Joplin, Missouri. Lead, lead and zinc mines, yeah, in, wow. all around there. And uh, then my other grandfather was a brick mason who dabbled in electricity. And he dabbled in uh, electronics, I should say. And um, after World War II, he uh, actually sort of, he kind of invented a couple things, which a lot of people don't know anything about, but are are sort of kind of pretty, pretty common in uh, certain worlds. It's a long, weird story, but... Uh, uh, he um, invented a, a remote control system for model trains that was a pulse code modulated analog radio frequency signal that would move his crane left and right and raise and lower the 
raise and lower the boom and all this stuff. And he just came up with it himself, uh, all vacuum tube. And then in the 60s, he he was asked to put an alarm system in a bank in a very small town in Missouri called Webb City, Missouri, by a guy who owned a literally a, a you know like a TV repair shop next door, and so he designed this circuit and he built this crazy system for this bank, and uh, he got a he got a, a meet he got a you know like a meeting. Uh, they uh, the FBI knocked on his door one day and they said, "Where did you come up with this?" And he said, "Well, I just kind of invented it." And he said, "Well, we want to talk to you. Can you will you come with us?" He's like, "Well, now, like, yeah, sort of now." And so. They, uh, I think they went I and mean, he took a meeting up in Kansas City, and they they asked him not to patent it or to do UL. They they basically wanted a couple of the things in it, so it's kind of cool. I, I can't tell you exactly what it was. It's so long ago for me, and and uh, I don't know much about it. But uh, well, it but I know that it was. Uh, I know that it was uh, um, an electric eye system for uh, uh, detecting shadows. So that thing that James Bond always has to like do yeah, the, the I think fucking maneuvers to dodge but over when he's breaking so, in. So, yeah. So, you know, I, one side of my family, my grandfather taught me how to use tools. And the other side was, you know, a, a brick mason who was a frustrated electronics engineer. And uh, that was Maddie. My dog just ran into uh, Lidge's Yeah, Maddie's mic stand. Ma- making her way around the, yeah, the studio. Yeah, Maddie's my 14-and-a-half-year-old schnauzer who is blind. So if you hear her run into things, that's what she's doing, running into things. But uh, she likes to come to the studio. So so she can run into new things. And step on pedals. She loves guitar pedals. Nice. She likes to change the yeah, sound she loves the it just, Yeah. Uh, also, you know, it's kind of funny, um, looking at my studio, notice the two 4K, the the 4K and the 3K mm-hmm. harmonizers. Mm-hmm. Um, she lo- she will run into those and turn the wheel. <laughs> so I was in a mix one day and I had just a little nice like layered shift at 101. I just load 101. And it comes to this background vocal part and one of the vocals was like two octaves up. And I was like, what the heck? And she had walked by and ran into the wheel and spun the wheel and raised the pitch, which was pretty awesome. So she helps me on some of my mixes, which I think, I think Brian Eno might've used to use that same technique. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I get out my, uh, my oblique strategies cards and one of them says, let the dog loose. Um, (laughs) but, um, so yeah, so I my uh, and my my father uh, uh, is um, my father's a he's um, a machinist and uh, and then uh, and then my stepfather is uh, uh, who who really is you know my father sort of uh, he was uh, in banking <laughs> but uh, yes. he was really great and so I have this weird background. Joplin's a small town, you know. I got started um, hanging out with the band in the you know, early eighties, like 82, right out of high school. And I was in college. I, I was kind of a nerd kid. I went to electronic school in high school. So I graduated high school with basically six credits away from an associate's degree in electrical engineering. And, um, right about that time in 82, that was the big, you know, computer, personal computer days and all that. And I, I kind of got into that for a while in college. I went to college for a year. Sorry. I went to college for a year and um, she's I, getting I just, ready to go roll the ultra har- yeah, harmonizer change, there and change uh, her harmonizer there. Her voice. Um, uh, I and I just was I was working with this band and you know man I'd love to say like I just loved music so much it was but it was just all about there were no girls in the 
computer lab, you know, it was like, <laughs> yeah. I, and, and back in those days you could, you could drink at 18 in Kansas, which was five miles away. Wow. And it was like, okay, well I turned 18. It was like, Oh, I want to go see bands. I went and saw bands every weekend or, and, um, I just really got bit by live music. And so I just started doing live recording or not live recording, but I started doing live. This, this is, is yeah. This is like mid. This is like this is like eighty four, eighty three, eighty forty five. Yeah, man, that was like a, that was like a golden age of in, yeah, in man, skinny and ties and you know, like girls with big hair, not not as big as the nineties hair, but like pretty big hair, lots of Aquanet. Yeah, you know. And, but I mean, as uh, far as bands too. I mean, this was oh, a, yeah. this was an era when bands like the Red Hot Chili Peppers were first rolling out in yeah. vans and driving themselves around oh, the yeah. country to play shows. And that's oh yeah, absolutely. And you know there was there, well, there was a ton of great music in the Midwest too that um, that I mean I remember when you know Soul Asylum was a rock band like a punk rock band you know so out of Chicago it's like really you know and the Replacements I mean all those yeah. all those bands in the mid eighties and uh, and REM were, were REM super was super big right? REM was super yeah super influential. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I could go on and on about all those days. I mean, I toured for a long time. You know, I toured for almost 20 years, really, wow. in, in the grand scheme of it. Um, and, you know, I, I've worked with a bunch of people uh, in the live sound world. Uh, I'm probably one of the few people who've done both, you know? Well, I mean, I understand the um, hesitation to want to reminisce too much about a, a, a time in the past. But I think, you know, our listeners, our rock stars here are, are people who are – starting out in their recording career and they're starting out in their right. path. And sometimes I think it's really insightful for them to realize that these names that you're mentioning are bands that seem too big to be true now. But at that time, you know, they were just like, well, a lot of them were, a lot of them were kind of nobody. I mean, I, uh, I was, I, I mixed a band. I say I was in a band because I was the fifth member of the band. I mean, I did everything. We, yeah. we all did everything and it was five way split, which is pretty amazing for the sound guy to get a five ways, you know, a piece of the band. But, um, for a band that opened a tremendous amount of shows, Columbia, St. Louis, Kansas City area, because the band was amazing, it was really great. And I mean, I remember playing the first show that Sonic Youth ever did in Columbia, Missouri. And, you know, Thurston had his 20 weirdly tuned Mustangs. And I, I was just so blown away by how great they were. You know, this yeah. is like 86, early 80s, 85, 86, something like that. It's a little fuzzy now, but yeah. I think it'd be 86, 86, 87, somewhere in there. And, um, and just seeing some of these bands early, you know, early on that were really great. I mean, seeing the replacements, did a tour with the replacements. Um, what was the band that you were with? There was a, it was a band called a picture made, a picture made. Okay. And you said, you mentioned St. Louis. So I was actually in St. Louis on that second half of the eighties oh, yeah. myself. So I'm guessing well, uh, you guys were playing okay, Cicero's so basement bar and that's Cicero's basement. Absolutely. Um, most of the stuff that Picture Made played was Cicero's um, and Mississippi Nights. Yep. Uh, when it was a half size. Venue. When it was the <laughs> court, yeah, the the side yeah. venue. Uh, yeah, and uh, what, I mean, there there's some others. Um, do you remember Billy Goat Hill? I'm not that might have been before. That you, if you were there mid, that that was a little earlier. I started in '86 there, but I do yeah. remember going down. '86, seeing- yeah, man, I was there in '86 a lot. Yeah. The Flaming Lips. I saw oh, yeah. a show, one of did, their early did show shows. Did Flaming Lips in Tulsa once. Yeah. Played in Tulsa a lot. It's a cool town, Tulsa. Well, so, um, all right. So you were, you were coming up in bands. You were, you were uh, 
doing lots of sound. I'm, I'm so, guessing so you picked up what an ended instrument up too. I, I had I worked in a music store in '85, uh, and they had a little eight-track studio as part of this. Not really part of the store, but a guy gave lessons next door and he had an eight track. And so he kind of was like, well, I got some sessions I can't do if you want to do them. You know, there's 20 bucks in it or something, you know, something stupid. And I was like, okay, well, I need to go over there and figure it out. And it was an 80, a Tascam 80-8 mm-hmm. with the DBX and a Tascam 3 mixer, which is actually still a pretty great deal. And, um, and uh, some, you know, 57s and 58s and some uh, AMR PD monitors or something. Yeah. I mean, it's something, you know. And uh, so I did that. I was there for about five, four or five months and I worked there. And then that would have been in 85. And then in 86, I was starting working for Picture Made. And there was a, another local band in Joplin. There was a studio in Joplin called Massey Studios. Mm-hmm. And it was owned by a friend of mine named Rick Massey, who who I owe the greatest gratitude in the world for. Uh, and and he knows this. <laughs> I mean, I've told him over and over. But I mean, I really have to thank him so much. Because he did something really dumb. I mean, in, in one sense. What, he let uh, you engineer? He let me engineer. <laughs> I, I came in, uh, this band wanted to record, but they, they didn't like the house guy who wasn't exactly Rick. It was another guy, but Rick was kind of the other house guy and they wanted me to do it. And he just, he, he said, okay, here's how the console works. They had an A, uh, Alan Heath, uh, Syncon B desk. It was a 40 channel desk, 24 buses in line. I mean, it was a pretty complicated little piece of machinery for me at that point, coming from the Tascam three, but yet I was doing live sound. So I totally got all the busing and routing and all that. And after about 30 minutes, he was like, Hey, I think you got it. So, you know, I'll be in the other room. And about six o'clock he came in and he goes, Hey, I'm going home. Here's the keys. Uh, come by in the morning. I want to talk to you. I said, okay, cool. I'll, I'll bring you your key. He goes, Oh no, it's not my key. It's your key. You're the new engineer. You know more than all of us. I go, I don't know anything. He goes, it doesn't matter. You're better than, you're better than me. That's all that matters. That's great. And, and I was like, okay. So the next day I came in, we talked and he offered me a gig in the studio. I think I made $5 an hour. And, uh, that was awesome. Yeah. That to me at the time was just like, are you kidding? Yay. So, but what I got to do is I got to just go there and teach myself, learn. And the funny thing was I had to learn sort of fast because that weekend, the reason he gave me the keys is that weekend he had a session. Um, and this is really hilarious because the first album I ever did, I did that weekend and it was a, uh, a group. I can't say a band. It was not a band. It was a group called the Crusaders for Christ. <laughs> and they were a Southern gospel quartet with the piano player straight up down the road, Southern gospel, but not a male quartet. It was, it was two and two. Two men. It was a. It was two couples. Uh-huh. Piano player, the whitest piano player on the planet, and they wanted to record with this the the church's drummer, bass player, and guitar player. So, we recorded the whole record, and uh, we cut live vocals like in the room. I think I used. Four fifty ones for vocal mics. I mean, I, I had no idea what I was doing whatsoever. And uh, then we mixed the record. And I remember like having this, like you know, we cut to a quarter inch, a quarter inch machine, 
all Atari. It was a, a MTR, not MTR 90. It was a MX 70, one inch, 16 track. Wow. And, um, and when we had a quarter inch MTR 12, I think. And I cut the whole record a quarter inch. And then they gave me the order, the running order. And I was like, but it's not in the same order that's on the tape. Like I was so like I like I never even thought about okay how do I get what, get the songs we, rearranged and we, mixed down and they're like we're gonna go to dinner can you get here's the best part can you get us cassette by the time we get back of it in order I go uh, yeah so then I'm like scrounging around trying to figure out how to do this because I've never done it and you know then I just kind of went oh look there's a huge stack of quarter inch reels right there so I just spun each one onto a reel and then put it, pieced it together. And, and then I realized, oh, hold it. I'm the one responsible for the space between them. So now it's like, oh, oh, now I can, oh. And you know, it took me two hours, but uh, by the time they got back, you know, and then I put the cassette in because there was no such thing as a CD player in 1986. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I hit record and did side one on one side of a 45 minute, you know, like a 45 minute cassette or 90 minute cassette. And, Flipped over the other side, did side B, and they're like, we love it. It's great. Send it off to, um, what was that company in Springfield, Missouri? There was duplication. A, yeah, 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 yeah. Nas uh, uh, national tape and tape duplication or something. And they would make the cassettes and the whole deal. Yeah, and the, so t cassette duplication. Well, so first of all, for our listeners, if you hopefully you do know what a cassette is and you've seen them, they're still around. They're probably making a, a resurgence. Oh, it's the somewhere. hipster thing. Everybody yeah. knows what a cassette is. So when you need to duplicate cassettes, they would have these giant machines, and they'd pop your cassette into. Well, you might do it from a quarter inch reel too. Yeah, I send a quarter inch reel. A lot of times they do it from a cassette too. Yep. So they pop it in, and then there's just like. 50 cassettes rolling mm -hmm. on, you know, on the surface of this machine. And at just do five to at, 10 times right, speed. speed them way up. Yep. So it's somewhere when you were assembling these uh, mixes in a new order, did you think to yourself, geez, I really feel like I'm mastering this process. And I never had out. no idea what, no, no, I Not didn't. I was, that you were in fact I was mastering. just deer in the headlights, figuring it out. And the funny thing was, you know, I, I worked for Rick until 1990. So that would have been 86. And I actually, when a picture made broke up in 88, I went to work for him full time and, and I worked for him. I, I repaired guitar amps for his father who had a record music store next door, Massey Music next door. Mm -hmm. And uh, I fixed a lot of PVs, a lot of fenders, a lot of that kind of, I mean, I just, I repaired stuff. My electrical engineering worked out for nice. me. And then Rick had a degree. So he was a little smarter than me on some stuff and he would help me through some of that stuff. But like I had to teach myself aligning machines, aligning everything, you know, um, Maintenance, studio yeah. maintenance, how to, uh, you know, everything. I did teach myself everything. First thing I did was they had a drum, they had drums in a drum booth and they had uh, maxi pads on all the toms and all the toms had no bottom heads. Just like taped onto the top. Taped the onto toms. them. And the first thing I did was go next door to the music store, get a bunch of drum heads and put the bottom heads on and tune the drums. And I remember Rick came in, he's like, He's like, what are you doing? It's like, what you I'm, do like, I'm like, I'm trying to make these drums sound good. And he's like, oh, you'll have a real hard time with those without those, with those bottom heads. And I go, oh, well, what do you mean? I'm like, boom, boom. And he's like, oh, 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 okay. Like you figured, you figured out like, how to whoa, make them sound like, good. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Like they and actually sound like It was just, it was just funny. Now. It was, you know, like, 
it, it was a different way of doing. It was a different way of thinking. I think I just don't think that anyone they had thought. To, to, I think at the time it was like I've got to get this session. It's it's this amount of time, and I've got this other. I run another business. He ran another business, so the studio wasn't really like this thing that made him money. It was just oh, it's this thing I bought, and now I I, I thought it'd make money, but now it's a lot of work for me. And then when suddenly I was there, he was like, oh, it does not a lot of work for me anymore. So go for it. Do whatever yeah. you want to do. And, and, you know, it was great. I mean, I, I, I didn't make any records there that anybody would know or, or have ever heard or know anything about. But Well, it's you know. interesting to hear you talk about coming in and making changes to it and just kind of doing your thing, you know. Because, so, again, our listeners are going to love hearing stories about stuff in the past. But, of course, they're chomping at the bit for wanting to learn how to sure. do something now. And to hear that story, what strikes me is, you know, you've got – um, somebody who's a generation above you who owns the place and literally probably comes from. It's actually a, funny. Know. He's not. He he really wasn't a generation above. Oh, he, he wasn't. He, right. He's about five years old. Okay. But <laughs> but but I mean, but but the generation above me story is coming. All right. Well, I, right I guess what I wanted to take away from your story is that you came in and you made a change to things, and it's just a reminder to you know people starting out that yeah. it's the things that, that you're going to do that are going to define what happens next in music. I, I think you have to know. I think I think the thing was for me is that I I understood that he didn't know any more than I did. So, and he by his own admission said that. So anything I did was uncharted waters for both of us. It was both of us learning how, oh, you know, um, I mean, if I would have designed the studio and I didn't, there were a million things I wouldn't have done. Yeah. You know, uh, the the right-hand side of the studio was in a um, a corner, a triangular corner that's, uh, what is it when you have a triangle that, or a, an angle that's less than 45? Oh, acute. Acute. It was an acute angle. And they had put kind of an indoor-outdoor carpet on the wall. And about every 16 inches where the studs were, they'd done a, a pine sort of strip. Yeah. Like a, like a, like a half-inch strip of pine. Like a furring strip. So the strip. entire – a furring strip, exactly. The entire right side of the studio was a built-in comb filter. It was just, I could look at it and go, I know that doesn't work <laughs> at all. And it's in a corner. It's in a less than 45 corner. It's like, you know, and uh, we had a set of, the monitors were EV uh, Century 100s, which actually sounded pretty good. Uh, but the room had been tuned with an analyzer and the right side EQ was a comb filter. And the left side was like just a little bit of like tone. And I would just look at that and be like, there's no way that this can translate. Right. Ever. You know? And so then it was like, okay, well, let me try some small speakers. And at the time, I don't think I was smart enough to get the fact that that's a whole nother ball of wax, the small speaker conundrum, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I tried, I bought some aura tones and, and, I couldn't make heads or tails of that. And it was it was because I was doing live sound and I was used to being it being big. Right. So the Century 100s would actually get big in the room. You know, is the big speaker. And it would sound familiar to you. It like would sound familiar and it was all above me. Like, you know, well, I mean, I I wasn't at that point in in a point where I could fly a PA, you know, flying a PA meant I, you know, we 
we put it on the stage. <laughs> we flew it above the ground uh, on the stage. But uh, so so it was familiar. But um, can you explain what oratones are for our listeners? Yeah, oratone is a little cube uh, with a four inch speaker, I think, and they were they were really made for. Uh, checking mono mixes from best that I remember back in the day. That was kind of what I was told later on that people bought them to put them in the center of your speaker and you hit the mono button and switched to those. And it, that's what it sounded like on the radio. On the radio. And or so like on it's your like, TV it's like speaker, if you, right? you, if people have NS10s because they mix on them because they sound bad, our tone is even one step worse bad than that. You know, uh, I don't use NS10s because they sound bad. I use NS10s because they sound cool. If you, mod them a little bit like I have. Lidge can see what I've done. Yeah, what, and, what? Um, and you know, uh, you put the right amplifier on them, they're absolutely great. for They'll, they'll translate into every world. But Oratones will do the same thing. It's all about your reference. doesn't yeah. matter what the speaker is. If you have a speaker that you understand what music sounds like and you play it back, I mean, it could be anything. It could be a boombox. It could be, uh, uh, I mean, I have a set of ATC-25s very expensive set of speakers. They sound amazing. Do they always sound like what I want? Nope. But do they sound really great? Yes. Are they my reference? They're not my reference. They're actually my alternate reference. I use uh, Perak Studio 100s. Those are my reference. I know what everything sounds like on them. I have a set at my house. I have a set in a road case I take with me anywhere I go anywhere. And I have a set in my B room and I have a set here on the studio. And, and the important thing is that you know what they sound like. I know like. what they sound like. You yeah. put them on the Bryson 4B, I know exactly what they sound like. So what's a modern, what's a today equivalent of an Oratone for people who are making I think there's today? a Avantones. I think that's, is that the name of the company? Yeah, Avantone is Avantone, a company that makes it, yeah. an Oratone. Yeah. I guess what I'm getting at too is uh, to suggest that using well, the Oratone. NS10s became the de facto Oratone replacement. Right. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. I guess what I was getting at is um, we're trying to segue a little bit to listening to an iPhone speaker or oh, laptop speakers that's and a whole headphones and that kind of stuff. I mean, but, MacBook speakers, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I, or an iPhone speaker, either one of those are, I mean, I. Do you find I, those useful? Um, do you, do, yeah, do you, sometimes. Do you hate them? It's not that I hate them. It's that I, I understand what they are, you know. <laughs> I use, um. Uh, Source Connect, not Source Connect, Source Live mm -hmm. uh, here. So uh, a lot of people use uh, 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 um, stream. No, uh, nice cast. Nice cast. Yeah, yeah thank you. I was, I was trying to. I was trying to get that in my head. Um, uh, but I like Source Live because I can. I can uh, ramp it up. I mean, I could Source Live to a million people if I wanted to, right. just by buying some minutes and because it's it's buffered through source uh, elements server it's you know it's all you know it's all through their stuff and this is a way to stream your this is mix. a way to stream and they have an iphone app and so yeah i i have many times put a mix up on the desk um playing back put it on my phone streamed it put it on my phone walked from in here out to my car turned on my car set the bluetooth and sat and listened to it streaming in my car uh, so that I know what it sounds like, you know, what a 128 kilobit or 192 for me, that's what I said it at, 192 kilobit MP3 sounds like streamed over the air, you know, um, uh, done it a bunch. But do I like it? No, not really. 
But sometimes you might respond to it. You might make changes in a mix based I have, on that. I have definitely made changes to a mix based on the sound of the mono iPhone speaker. So, yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Here's a question. How mm-hmm. in the world do you get to hear a bass on a mono iPhone speaker? Well, turn it off. Turn the bass off? Yeah. Turn the bass off and turn it back on. You'll hear it. <laughs> right on. You know, I, I have a couple things about the bass. Uh, uh, first of all, I've been, I work mostly in my own room, so I kind of know it pretty well. But if I go elsewhere, I just will listen to the mix on the lowest possible volume that I can possibly get the speaker to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'll turn the bass off and turn it back on. Turn the bass off, turn it back on. And, and as long as I can hear it coming and going... It's loud enough. If when I take it out, what I'm hearing is radically different, it's too loud. But I don't, I mean, I mix pretty bass heavy of uh, kick and bass, but, you know, can it ever be too loud, really? I don't know. But, you know, you know what I mean? But uh, Can it be too fun? Can it be too fun? That's exactly right. I, I, I don't want to say speak names, but I had a... a I should, but I'm not going to. And our guy asked me in a mix if I could make the mix. He was sitting in the room with me. If I could make it bounce more. And I said, well, okay, cool. Um, what, 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 what do you suggest I do to make it do that? That's good thinking. And he said, uh, well, uh, uh, and I go, turn the bass up? Said, yeah, let's try that. So I added two tenths of a dB of bass. I go, well, what do you think of that? He goes, can I hear it without it? I, you know, went back one on the mix while it's playing. I was in flying faders. I go back one. He's like, yeah. I, I go, you want to hear it with it? Uh, he goes, yeah. He goes, yeah, man. That's, yeah, it bounces a little more. I was like, okay. And go. then, and then, knowing what he really wanted, I took, um, you know, like a half a dB or a quarter of a dB of, threshold off the two bus because that's really what he wanted right he just wanted it to open up the compressor he just wanted to just open up a bad just speak and uh and then a couple minutes later he's like yeah man that's that's way better so you know the the funny thing is is that i knew what he wanted and and what he wanted was it was valid to a point but i just wanted to know if he knew what he wanted yeah and then when he didn't i gave him something that he could take away saying I, you know, well, I, you know, I haven't turned the bass up. This wasn't really bouncing. wasn't dancing enough. Right. You know, so now he's proud of it, and he thinks I'm a super cool guy for letting him. You gave him a great experience. I gave him a good experience. You know, and, it's you know, part of what we do. That's part of what we do. And, you know, if you're working with clients, I always say you're either um, trying to help them accomplish their business goals, you know, if they've really got something and, and a record is a financial investment for them, or you're helping them experience a wonderful form of creative tourism. Yeah, and that's exactly right. Creative tourism is uh, a... You're just trying to give them a great experience. They're here to to enjoy the crap out of making music and making a record, and and sometimes it's our job to help them do that. Yep. Well, so um, we haven't really talked about it. Let me me talk one more. Let me talk one little more thing. When I I left Joplin, Mm -hmm. I left Joplin in 1990, and I went to work in Springfield, Missouri. And I went to work in Springfield, Missouri for one reason and one reason only, and that was Lou Whitney, the man Lou Whitney, Mm -hmm. uh, the legend Lou Whitney. Lou Whitney um, is probably one of 
the greatest unsung heroes in American roots music. Um, he passed away last year in October. Uh, I say over and over again that he was my mentor. Uh, he doesn't, he never thought that at all. He just thought we hung out and, but he taught me a lot of things about how to deal with people, how to be funny, how to, how to like, how to like make people laugh. Um, and you know, there's a lot of people that I know who knew who he was and it, the world is a, the world is not a better place, uh, because he's gone, but it was a much better place when he was here. And he gave me a job in Springfield after about a year of working up there in a bar. And, um, he just basically did the same thing. He gave me the keys and let me make records in there with local bands and I, and I, you know, it's funny. I, I said once in an interview that he paid me $10 an hour and then he actually wrote me, he said, uh, no, that would have been nice, but I, I paid you seven. <laughs> and I was like, really? He's like, yeah, I paid you seven. I was like, oh, okay. Well, he's like, yeah, I, it wasn't as altruistic. I wasn't as altruistic as you, as you believe. I remember but, my first $7 an hour yeah, job. I thought it was great. It was great, man. You know, and the cool thing was that, um, he he was he was just the best man. I he gave me some of my favorite sayings in the whole world, and how to deal with sessions and how to deal with people. And you know, I still use I use my favorite quote of his was "One man's boy howdy's another man's far out." And um, and basically, he I I said you know I use that quote a lot. This was a couple of years ago, and he said, "Oh well, you know I updated it, you know for the new millennium." And I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah, now it's one man's o uh, WTF, it's another man's OMG. <laughs> and I go, I go, oh, well, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, but, well, um, you know, he's just talking about how, you know, some people love the Beach Boys and some people love Megadeth. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's uh, that. The people who love Megadeth probably are not Beach Boys fans. That segues to a question I wanted to ask anyway, which you may have just answered, which was mm -hmm. what's some of the best advice you remember anybody giving you coming up? In, in recording and music. Become a lawyer. Become a lawyer. <laughs> go into Your own law. lawyer? Yeah, go into law. You know, quit this. Uh, what's the best advice? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, or if you, if you wanted to turn around and just share some, some good <clears throat> advice to somebody who's starting out. Well, okay, here's the best advice I can give. And, and it's, uh, and that is, uh, you have to be fearless to make it in this business. If if you if you are a person who is afraid of change, or you're afraid of uh, failing, or you're afraid of um, losing your house, <laughs> which is actually you know what everybody does. Uh, um, if you're afraid of all that stuff, you're normal. But if you're afraid of it and you act upon it because you're afraid, then you are not going to last. I I made when I lived in Joplin. First of all, my parents lived there. My my at the time my grandparents were still alive, they lived there. My brothers were there. I lived in a house with two girls. It was a beautiful, cool old house. It was awesome. 
you know, uh, we were all roommates and cool. We hung out. We went to bars. We had a lot of fun. Joplin's 40,000 people. There, there's not a lot going on there. But there was a little bit of a music scene happening. There were some cool bands there. And I worked at a, I worked at a studio. that had the keys to it. I could do whatever I wanted. You know, I made $5 an hour, dude. $5 an hour. We're talking about 1989 here. You know? And I got this offer to move to Springfield to work in a club for a guy who basically was a drug dealer that's what he that's how he made his money mm-hmm. is he sold cocaine and and had live bands play and then want to pay them in cocaine which is because it was the 80s right and um i went to work there and i worked for him for a year i worked 11 in the morning until 4 a.m every day wow because and i was the production manager for the venue so i did monitors i did front of house i did lights i climbed on i climbed on the ladders i focused lights i changed gels i programmed the the lights had a you know little leprechaun thing or whatever the pins and and uh you know uh i he had a pa company i went out and did gigs for him it was a complete can i say bullshit can sure, I say, man. it's sure. a complete I put bullshit a little red e next to the podcast bullshit gig <laughs> But you know what? I learned a lot. I learned about uh, I, I learned about working for people who you know I don't want to work for. Yeah. And all the time, I kept trying my best to figure out a way to get in with Lou Whitney. And you know what happened is Lou came over. He did he his band played, and then this other band played that he was producing, and he came in to listen. And he said, "You're pretty good." He goes, you should come out to the studio sometime. Do you, do you work? I go, yeah, I worked at the studio in Joplin. He goes, you know, we'd talked about this before, but but him and I, and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah come out. And uh, and then I had a little band, terrible band, actually, but kind of good, from Columbia, Missouri, um, that was sort of a ska band. They had horns, and, and they smoked mountains of pot. And they wanted to make a record, and... I did this record and then, and Lou was like, wow, this is really great. So here, here's the keys come. And about that time, the, the gig at the, the club I was working at sucked and I quit. So, so my point is, is that I left my hometown where I, you know, lived with two girls. I had a gig at a studio. I moved into a horrible situation. I didn't know anybody in Springfield. I didn't have a place to live. I just found a situation where again, I was living with two girls. I found a situation that, um, after living in my van for about four, five, six off and on weeks, yeah. living in my van and driving back to Missouri and I mean, just driving back to Joplin and staying in a motel and it, it, you know, just all that stuff. Did it have shag carpet on the walls? Uh, yeah, it did. My van absolutely did. It was the rapiest van I've ever seen. <laughs> I actually went to pick up a girl for a date one time. This is golly back in the late eighties. And we pulled up, I pulled up out front. I came up to get her. Her dad opened the door and, and said, is that your car? And I said, yes. And he closed the door. Wow. And a few right. minutes later, she came out with the keys and said, we're going in my car. We're going in my dad's car. Uh, that's kind of that's funny. Great. Um, As a dad, I can appreciate that. Yeah, you can that. appreciate that. Yeah, I can too, totally. Uh, but um, yeah, here this guy shows up, wheels up in the band van with the shag carpets. and the, eight-track, eight-track cassette player? It did not have an eight-track. It had a cassette, but not an eight-track. had a nice stereo in it. 
Alpine. It was cool. So for our listeners, if you don't know what an eight-track cassette is, <laughs> that's like a giant boxy cassette that you just shove into the hole like an Atari cartridge. Ah, you might not know what an Atari endless cartridge loop. is. Either. You should just look it up. It's yeah, an and it's just, it's and cool. you can't even tell what you're going to listen to. You sort of have no control. It's great. Over the music. It's great. It's like 22 minutes and or something like that, or 18 minutes or 15 or something. It's not even like a full side of an album. So it'd be probably 15 minutes of tape, and it would change tracks. Quarter inch tape, eight tracks of quarter inch. Hi, I hope you are enjoying hearing from today's featured rock star. We are just about to head into the jam session, and I want to let you know that all the cool stuff we talk about will all be available in the show notes for this episode. If you would like me to send it directly to you, all you need to do is text JAM SESSION to 33444, and I'll send you free content, including the show notes. Again, that's JAM SESSION to 33444. 444, and I'll send you free content, including the show notes. Cheers. All right, I'm going to jump into some uh, some feel-good questions. Let's here. do it. So um, tell us a time where you felt like you, you hit a real point of failure, something where you you just felt like you're about to give up or something, and it turned out to be a great learning experience for you. I mean, you, almost your description of moving to, to Springfield well, would be well, that. Well, the right? thing is, is that I moved to Springfield. I worked for this club for a year. It was horrible. And then I worked for Lou for two years. And in that period of time, the next, you know, I, I've told people this a lot. I've made these jumps. I did a show with Tammy Wynette. I just brought some monitors to them. A year later, I got a call from the production manager for Tammy and said, hey, you want to come to Nashville and work for Tammy Wynette? And I said, I don't know why I'd want to do that, but let me think about it. How much did it pay? And he told me, and I was like, oh, hmm. Now, looking back on it, it wasn't a lot of money, really. I mean, in the grand scheme of it. Um, so I did it. I jumped. And I moved. It. I, well, I didn't move to Nashville. I, I took the gig. And I actually spent a year driving back and forth from Nashville wow. to Springfield. Wow. But the thing I've is, is but, but the deal is, is that, yeah, Nashville, you know, like the Tim, the country music world, she would go out on Thursday, come back on Sunday or come back on Monday. And then I would just drive back home. You know, it was, it was easy. I could be at home for four days and come back. It was a weekend warrior gig. Um, but, uh, after about a year of that, I, I had to, um, the front of house engineer quit production manager quit. I took his job and I had to move to Nashville as part of the deal. And I moved here. I didn't know anybody. And I just jumped in. I uh, I also did my first Nashville session uh, about a year after that, and um, it was at some studio in a building they just tore down yesterday over there by the substop. Uh, it was kind of that next to Cropper's old place up in the upstairs, and I think it was Monty Powell's place or something. I don't know what it, what the deal was, and uh, it was a disaster. I mean, I had no idea what these people were wanting or doing. I was used to sort of doing everything on my own schedule, and then like. You know, the whole band showed up and wanted, you know, 10 minutes after they showed up at Downbeat. And, you know, so in in some ways, that was an interesting failure. But but that didn't really mean anything. I, I've been very lucky in that, that uh, I, I don't have anything I can just point out and say, this was a disaster. Yeah. A complete disaster. I, I thought uh, moving to Nashville and working for Tammy Wynette was a disaster to my 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 studio career because I couldn't get a gig here if I wanted to. I was 28 years old and everybody wanted me to be an intern. I couldn't quit my, I couldn't quit a paying gig to be an intern, you know? So I just had to kind of put it on hold for a while. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it sounds like you were already familiar with failures. Like you didn't view failures as fa- failures by this point. You'd had enough well, experience. I, I just, I just, I just, I, I didn't, 
Yeah, I mean, like you weren't a, you were you knew how to deal with fear. You knew how to. It's it's, it's not really yeah. One really failures. It's more about forward. like okay, I'm afraid of moving to Nashville because I don't know anybody, but I'm just going to do it yeah. and see what happens. Yeah. And you know, I I didn't know anybody in Springfield. I didn't know anybody in Nashville. I didn't know anything about Nashville. I didn't know anything about the business of Nashville. But I knew that I could. I knew what I could do, and I just knew it. Time would come when it would show. Yeah, you know. Now, were you even a fan of country music at that point? Was that like in I your was a fan house? of I was a fan of Tammy. I was a fan of all the, you know, Merle Whalen. All I was family friend. I loved all that. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, country music minus a couple bright shining stars, um, sucks. You know, I just did Chris Stapleton's record, and it's brilliant. Yeah, and he is brilliant, and you know, um. I'm not saying it's brilliant because I did it. I'm saying it's brilliant because he's an amazing singer and songwriter and it's just a brilliant record. Yeah. Sturgill's amazing. He's awesome. You know, he's a great guy. I love that guy. Um, And he's a good, you know, they're both good people. Yeah. Pretty much everything else uh, out there and, and minus a couple people that maybe know what they're doing is complete and utter fucking bullshit it is it is the worst shit i've ever heard well that's tough man so so i I definitely know you for working with a lot of artists that like to push the boundaries and like Mm -hmm. really get to the heart of what makes something great you want to talk a little bit about that i mean sturgill simpson you've worked with i did sturgill's first record and you know it's funny he asked me he asked me to mix metamodern and I was actually in the middle of another project, another Dave Cobb record at that point. And by the time uh, I, he asked me about it, it was over New Year's. It was around New Year's. And he sent me a text like, hey, I got this record. Do you, you think you have time? It'd probably just take a couple of days. And I wrote back and I said, yeah, man, I'd love to do it. I, I can do it like on January 12th. And he's like, oh, we already mixed it. I was like, oh. And so, and that's basically the deal. They just mix it in one afternoon. You know, they did, wow. you know, Dave did it. Uh, it's the more or less, I, it's, they, Dave did it. So, um, so I didn't do the second one, but, um, you know, I, obviously I, you know, I spent eight years, right at about eight years now working with Jack White. And, you know, that's been a incredibly eye opening, uh, thing because, um, you know, he's, he's pretty amazing. I mean, he's probably the most talented person I've ever been around. Yeah. You know, he's one of my favorite drummers ever. That's great. He's my favorite keyboard player, organist and piano and organ. He's unbelievable. And you know, he taught all that. I mean, you know, he just did it himself. He's the easiest artist I've ever had to get a guitar sound for. It doesn't matter what amp he plays. It doesn't matter what guitar. It doesn't matter how old the strings are. It doesn't matter what microphone you put in front of it. It sounds just like him. That's great. And, you know, it's all in his hands. Um, Amazing vocalist. What he does with his voice just freaks me out sometimes. And, you know, I have to... um, Now, I didn't... You know, in in the last two years, I haven't worked with him as much as I did before, partially because he's been out on the road and working in between popping in and out off, off the road. Mm-hmm. And, but he's been working with my assistant, Josh Smith, who used to be my assistant now definitely is working for him and yeah. working for him yeah, as Josh. an engineer. Very yeah. Good. You know, Josh, of course. Another and bearded gentleman, the beard, other beard, my, the other beardo uh, in that team. 
And, you know, Josh is doing a great job and, and, you know, he, he's learned well. I mean, he's learned how to work with him and, and, um, but, uh, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not bummed out about it. I'm happy for Josh. You know, Jack wants to work when Jack wants to work. Yeah. You know, he, he called me last year. Yeah. Last year in August and was like, Hey, I got this record. I want to try to finish. Uh, are you available today? I was like, I'm available in September, <laughs> not today, you know? And so, so my schedule and, you know, my schedule and the fact that I'm not independently wealthy, um, uh, leads to often me missing working with Jack yeah. because Jack wants to work when Jack can work. Yeah, sure. And, uh, and he's really super cool about it. He doesn't ever hold anything against you if you can't work. You know, he's called me before, you know, hey, man, uh, can you work tomorrow? I'm like, you know, tomorrow is the 4th of July and I got family in town. And, oh, it is? You know, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you yeah. know, he just wants to, yeah, I've, got, I've got a day off. Why yeah. do I have a day off? Oh, it's the 4th of July. So, <laughs> you know, like, like, oh, okay. I mean, that, but sometimes that happens. And well, Josh so, has been great because Josh has been working for him on the road and it's, you know, they've, they've done good work. What's a um, what's a takeaway um, if you were going to sort of give a, a tip or an advice about the process of recording that you learned from that experience working with Jack or or you know that Josh is learning? Get uh, uh, learn to be fast. Mm -hmm. See, that's I, I think that's like the let, let me let me let me let me postulate let me let me throw out an idea here. Um, first of all, I think anybody learning this business should do live sound. They should, they should do live sound. They should do live sound while they're recording. And the reason being is that live sound teaches you a bunch of things. One, it teaches you that, um, you know, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to put a mix together in a very, very, very short period of time. Right. And, and, and you don't have all day to sort it out. You, you've got one song to do. Like I, I mixed Jars of Clay for years on the road, um, in the early nine, late nineties and, and early two thousands. And we would go into festivals having 48 inputs from the stage and I would walk up to a desk and I had to have those, I mean, no, you know, what, Oh, here we're on a soundcraft. Okay, great. All right, cool. All right, play. You know, one song to put a 48 channel mix together. One song. You know, otherwise, man, you're going to lose people. You, and you've got to kill. It's not just like, oh, I'm putting together an acceptable mix. You have to kill. Yeah. And so the deal with Jack, Jack doesn't, I mean, I, I never did a session with him ever where we got sounds. Getting sounds is the band learning this. I mean, you know, okay, cool. Here's this, I got this riff. Uh, can you play this on the bass? And, and I want you, can you play this on the drums? And cool. All right, cool. You ready in there, Vance? Yeah. Like, that is. It's not like you wait your turn. No, <laughs> no, no, no. It's just, we just go. Yeah. And you know, and then once they're recording, you can't change anything. Or if you do, it's got to be these minute, tiny little changes because, okay, cool. Well, I love the uh, first take intro, and then let's get the first take chorus. Let's get the second take, second chorus and verse and cut all that together. Do you have a process for um, making adjustments once things get rolling? Uh, no, I just try to, I try, I try to sneak things in when they're not playing. Yeah, I like you know to have I mean? a, keep a scratch pad next to me, and I'll just... Not change it during a take. I don't, even, I don't even have time to write stuff down. That's Josh's job. I'll just yell at him. That was his job. Like, you know, 
like, we're going to do this on the next change or whatever, you know, like run out there while they're recording and chain, move this mic, you know, like yeah. sometimes you just have to do that stuff. Yeah. But, and you know, it's all on tape, a track. That's right. It's all on a track. Yeah. So, um, you know, in, on, on, on tape there, there's no undo. There's only redo. Yes. Yeah. And when you're on two inch a track at seven and a half, everything is different. The punch in is different. You have to go in before the downbeat and you have to come out before the downbeat. Yeah. Um, I remember working with Steve Albini. He made a great comment about cutting to tape too. And people were talking about, you know, the pro, pro tools mentality of keeping all these takes and everything. And his attitude was sort of like, well, if that one's not good enough and you're going to do it again, why, why are we keeping that one? You know? Yeah. Why not just well, there's the a lot to be said. I mean, to. Richard Dodd, might, he, he's the one who said there is, you know, on tape, there's, there's no undo, just redo. And, and I have blown, I have recorded over things that were great working with Jack and he's never been angry. It's like, cool, we'll just get something better. Yeah. You know, and it's like, as long as you're, you know, as long as that's the mentality and it's not, you know, you're fired. I mean, there, there's, there's no need for that ever. I know people in this business who treat people, assistants and other people horribly. Yeah. And I got to be honest with you, there, there's, there's no, there's no reason for that ever. You know, I'm in this seat because I've spent years doing this. And the last thing I need to do is to make myself feel more important by yelling at somebody who's working for me or maybe an intern who's here for free, you know, like her, or, or, you know, just learning. They don't, they don't need, they don't need me to be an asshole to them, you know? I mean, and, and same thing with bands. I mean, you know, like I'm doing a lot of, a lot of production these days. There's no need for me to go yell at the band because they're being dicks. They know they're being dicks when they're being dicks, you know? Now I can go say, Hey, look, here's the deal. You can be a dick. But in the end, I'm the one who has the final say-so. I have the mute button. (laughs) Yeah, because you have hired me to produce. And I'm going to produce this track, and I'm going to produce it with you or without you. So you can be a dick about this part, but look, let's just work through it. And most of the time, you know, that kind of diffuses the situation and things are cool. But there's there's no reason for anybody. It's like – recording guys talking down about the live sound guys. Let me tell you, man, like you think you've got it rough. I sit here in my studio in the air conditioning, you know, all day in front of the same speakers and the same desk and the same everything. I tell you what, why don't we just take all this stuff and let's just load it into a really shitty sounding room every other day, put it in a truck every night, load it out every night, you know, and at any given point in time, in the studio, like I've never been in a studio situation where I've ever thought my life is in danger. I've never thought my life was ever in danger. Um, I've stood underneath 70,000 pounds of PA and watched the ceiling bend oh, man. when the PA stops when you fly it up and down and watch the ceiling bending and this PA bouncing. And you're saying they're going, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to put 400 people under this PA that I just flew. And it's my responsibility. And that's people could people could die. We've seen it. Investing in your music. Man. We've seen it. The the horrible thing that happened in Iowa, the Lady Annabellum thing. Nobody did anything wrong there. You know, I mean, they're gonna make somebody 
the scapegoat. But basically, what happened was nature. A big storm came with winds they didn't expect. It hit that top sideways, and the PA pulled the PA, pulled the PA, turned into a sail, and it pulled the PA down onto people and killed them. You know, so so if you think you're a badass and you work in a studio and you're you're thinking the live sound guys are a bunch of pussies, let me tell you, man, you don't even know what you're talking about. Those guys work hard. I loaded in the last tour I did was uh, the last real tour I did. I did do some dates with uh, Jack with the Dead Weather. That wasn't real. I mean, it was a real tour, but I was just you know, I would walk in with my. You know, I'd push some gear in, and it was you didn't easy. even have to wear the the flashlight. Oh on no, your I neck. had to wear the suit. I had to wear the whole suit. But but last real tour I did, you know, was a um, seven truck Christmas tour. Well, no, that's not really true. Um, the, the last big tour, seven truck Christmas tour. I loaded in every morning at seven thirty, and I got in bed every night at two. Wow! And we did twenty three shows in twenty six days. That's hard work, man. That's hard work. It's hard work, and it's not for the faint of heart. Because literally, you can you can kill people or be killed. You know, I I do the hay bale gig every year yeah. at Bonnaroo, and I can have always considered that hard work, but it's not even hard work mm-hmm. compared to what you just described. No, I mean, I mean, my 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 friends who are mixing and out there pushing cables and pulling cables, it's hard work. It's hard work. It's hard work for for the audience. I used to say that live sound is the best gig in the world if it wasn't for the band and the audience. <laughs> if you could just load in, set up, tune the PA, go to lunch, come back, put it all in the truck, it would what be about, the best what, gig ever. What about the club owner? Doesn't he go in with the, uh, no, she go in with the, it's the a whole other, yeah. Exactly. Well, so, all right. Well, so I, th- I think we're at a point where we may have to wrap up here, but uh, the last question, I, I wish like we to... talked about something important. <laughs> um, there was something uh, that I always uh, would like to ask you is, um, you know, this idea, again, for our rock stars, for our, our listeners starting out, um, of if, you know, if they're dropped in or if you were dropped into a strange city and, uh, you know, you were going to start out in recording, I'm going to kind of scratch my usual question. I'm going to put it back towards what you, your own advice, which is getting a gig in live sound. What advice would you have for somebody who's, you know, they're willing to take on this fear factor of moving to a new strange city and they want to start out and, and they love your suggestion of getting a gig in live sound. What's the best way to start? You know, how do you, well, how do you show up as I, somebody who doesn't know anybody yet? Me, I, I think that there's two things. First of all, if you want a studio, you want to work in a studio, right? Or not want to work in a studio, you want to record. First thing you need to do is you need to find some way to purchase some way of recording. All right. So that could be a laptop and an interface. It could be a, um, uh, well, that's probably the first route, a laptop and an interface. Um, I tell people all the time to uh, try to find a porta cassette or a, a Tascam 388, which is yeah. a quarter inch reel to reel. Because basically, you know, that kind of vibe, like, you, you know, Try to find one of those. The Porta cassette is the four track. Four cassette track player. cassette, yeah. Porta studio, I mean, Porta Port studio. studio. Um, that's the first thing. Not a porta potty, guys. Not a porta potty. That's completely different. Um, but a laptop and interface is a good first place. Find that first. Then go find a band that you're willing to do whatever it takes to help them out, and that means cart their gear around, do live sound for them. 
record demos in your basement. You know, get get yourself four good microphones. Uh, you can pretty much four or five good microphones. You can pretty much record a band. I mean, you know, you can put a mic in front of the kick drum, a mic over the top of the drums, and that's a drum sound. Put a mic a couple feet in front of the bass. And one of the guitars, and there's one of your bass guitar and drums. You know, yeah, is it is it like what I'm doing here every day and what you're doing every day? No, but that's what I started with. You know, I had a porta cassette. I'm trying to get back there every porta session. Porta studio. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is I think we all are, you know, uh, we all are to some degree. I, You know, all this technology kind of fucks everything up. Um, can I say that? Sure. Can I say, can I, say? Yes. I, I guess I did already. So, right. um, uh, parental advisory suggested. Um, we're making tipper core. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poor old tipper. Um, you know, uh, so first of all, do that and then do whatever it takes to, you know, uh, uh let me rephrase it. Do whatever it takes as long as it doesn't, uh, you know, uh, Go against your integrity. As long as you can keep your integrity, in other words, right. you know, uh, uh, you don't have to sleep with the band to maybe, get a, maybe to don't, be in a, you know, to, maybe to don't go find, uh, don't don't go offer your services to Gigi Allen, for example. Yeah, I, I, I saw a Gigi Allen show, man. Let me tell you, <laughs> I came really close to getting the poo thrown at me, uh, but that's a whole other story. A long time ago, but well, uh, so so you know, that's a great great advice. I mean, you know, if you're going to start out. Maybe show up in some town, find a band you like, see Start, if they'll let you sleep on their couch, bring your yeah, laptop man. and your four mics. Yeah, man. Do or, live or whatever. Yeah, or whatever. And it doesn't matter. I mean, if you have a laptop and you have four mics, you can record a band and then you can use those four mics to do overdubs on said band. The other thing is, um, you know, don't don't let the technology get in the way of the creativity. Because now with Pro Tools, you know, you have unlimited undos and all that sort of shit and tracks and all, you know. Um, I have a rule in a way on my on productions that I do to this day, and that is it has to fit. My entire record has to fit inside of 32 tracks. I have to do it in 32 tracks. Now, it used to be we'd do 24 tracks. 24 tracks, great. Do 24 tracks. But, I mean, you know, I made two Dead Weather records and one and a half Jack White records on eight tracks. So, um, you know, the Beatles did four tracks. So, I mean, you know, Dark you, Side you did, of the Moon, Dark Side of the Moon, tracks. 16 tracks. You, you know, now, were there techniques that were used? Uh, I'm working on a record right now, just Tyler Bryant, the Shakedown record. Um, last night, we did 12 or 15 or 16 big stacked vocal tracks. But at the end of it, I printed a two mix of it. Yeah, I, I did. I bounced that to to a stereo pair because I don't want to see all those tracks, and I want to make all those decisions. Don't be afraid to make decisions. That's that's the number one thing I say to anybody who's starting out. Don't be afraid to make decisions. Does that reverb sound cool on that guitar? Print it. Be done with it. Make a decision. Yeah. Because now, I can't tell you. And Lynch, I know you know this because you do this too how many times I get records from people that are like, I would say produced by somebody and completely unproduced by nobody. Like, like, okay, I just got one the other day that had every guitar track was four tracks. There was a mic on two different amps, a room mic and a, and a mic behind the guitar amp. Now I got to be honest with you. When you put all those together, 
it made a pretty good sound. But not that good. Like, the first track sounded pretty great. So what did I do? I turned the other three off. You know, make a decision. Yeah. Put put some thought in what you're doing. And, and make it so that if you are not the person mixing it, when the person that's mixing it gets it, they don't go, what the fuck is all this shit? Yeah, you know, I, I, I definitely didn't always know better. Um, I was well, also that guy showing up with four four tracks for every guitar overdub when we took a record to be mixed by Tom Lord Algae. Mm-hmm. And the first thing he did was put it up I think the I concert. know that. I think I know that record, uh, Ledge. You might, you might. And he, uh, <laughs> and he flipped phase on a couple of things. And, um, and it turned out that like half the tracks were the same track in mono, just out of phase anyway. So he just discarded them. Yeah. It was great. You know, uh, the funny thing is about that is we, we all learn these lessons. And the thing is like Pro Tools, <laughs> they're, they're the weed eating out. outside of my house right now. That's kind of outside the studio. I mean, it's kind of funny. I don't know if you guys heard that. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. All right. That was a weed. And it wasn't Maddie. Yeah, it wasn't Maddie. No, Maddie no, no, the no, no, no. If it was, this recording would be over. We'd be out of here. Uh, but um, <laughs> this makes me laugh. Chopping up the reels of tape. Yeah. Um, we've all we've all had Pro Tools and we've used it for so long now that, you know, we know that we have all this stuff. But, I mean, I remember getting Pro Tools for the first time and, and like, the D24 card and being like, I can do 64 tracks and I can bounce and I nothing and a quality goes, ah, yeah. you know, and, and having 24 drum tracks. Like, yes. And then later being like, I don't remember all these. No. Like, you know, like, hold it. What is this? You know, oh, that's the can. I put a mic inside a tin can. Oh, I thought that was a cool sound. No, it's stupid. Well, there was, um, I was just reading on Facebook recently on, uh, I think it was somebody asking a question on David Glenn recording on David Glenn's site. Um, and they were asking about getting a new rig and they got this new computer and they got an interface and everything, but it only had 64 tracks and, would, th- would that be okay? Is that enough? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, wow. Amazing, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I, I, uh, I, I, you know, every now and then a record comes to me that has a lot of tracks and I, I go, this has a lot of tracks because it's awesome. You know, uh, I mixed a record a, a couple years ago that I think is maybe the favorite thing I've ever mixed ever it's a band from holland called Destot, and they made this record called icon uh the letter i and con icon uh-huh. and um it is amazing and you know there was one song at 45 drum tracks but those 45 drum tracks were four completely different drum sets doing four completely different things in different parts of the song so it was smart. Yeah. It was so smart. And there's a lot of vocal tracks, but all the vocal tracks were smart. And so when I was putting it up, you know, I I, I, I didn't, I, I only had 32 channel desk at the time. So it was like, okay, well, this one's 94 tracks. Um, you know, I, I can play back 90, these, these 96K tracks. I can play back 96 tracks. Well, this one's 94. You know, so it's like, okay, uh, I have to combine some stuff. I had to bounce some things. I had to, you know, because... Even more than one louder. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, but in the end, it's just a brilliant 
piece of work because the producer, uh, Tori, Tor, Florim, he was genius and it was so smart. So sometimes those come to you and you go, oh, it's got a ton of tracks. Wow, it sounds great. Yeah. By the same token, I mixed a track here earlier this year that um, was 186 88 two tracks. I, I, I have an HDX system. I had to go borrow a card just to open the session to try to mix it. 186 tracks. And of the 186 tracks, there were 11 stereo kick drum tracks. And of the 11 stereo kick drum tracks, four of them were identical they were the same track, just copied and pasted to make the kick drum louder. <laughs> so it's like, you know, so, I mean, I can look at both sides of this and be like, okay, well, you know, there were 32 tracks of glitches and sweeps, which yeah. I combined into one stereo track. Well, you know, you can still record an entire orchestra with one SM57. Absolutely. And that didn't limit how many instruments you got down yep. on the record. It uh -uh. just, you don't need an orchestra's worth yeah. of individual tracks. So, I, I mean, I guess my, my advice is make decisions. Don't, you know, just, you know, here's my, my biggest advice to young kids, to young kids, <laughs> to young kids, young people in this business, people in this business starting out is just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. You know? Well, maybe at the beginning you should try it. Well, so you no, well, you should try it and learn that it's not, don't do it. But, um, but by the same token, do whatever it takes to make it work. I mean, whatever it takes, if, if you, if you need a hundred tracks to make your record, okay, cool. Do it. Just make sure it works. Yeah. Let that be the bold decision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, if it takes that much, okay, fine. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much you for, got it, man. for being on the show. On, you on got recording it. And I, 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 uh, you know, uh, hit me up on, uh, hit me up on Twitter. I'm, yeah, on, the, I'm on the Twitter, Vancelot, uh, at Vancelot, V-A-N-C-A-L-O-T. And uh, um, I'm not on Instagram. That's a hashtag, by the way. Vance is, hashtag, Vance is not on Instagram. Um, yeah, I'm sure I will be, but whatever. But I, I don't have time. I don't even have time for Twitter. But, uh, you know, hit me up. Um, and what if people want to check out the studio and learn more about the well, studio? If people want to check out the studio, that, that at the moment, our, our, uh, you know, we moved a year ago and we had, M Mitch and I are, we're not a commercial entity. People can't just walk in and book the studio. So, so having a website for the studio is sort of like, you know, putting up a billboard for a business that's not in business. Uh, but we have a website. It's just, it was nine years ago. When I first moved in to Sputnik, the, literally the week I moved in nine years ago, uh, Mitch had a photographer there and she came over and took some pictures and put it together. They put together a little website, a friend of ours did, and we wanted it just to be, okay, here's what it looks like. Well, of course, that changed radically over the years. And now, I mean, now it's that building, we don't need, we're not even in that building, but um, we, we kind of... Uh, been sort of lazy. We've been building studios instead of building websites. So don't really go to the website. It's, okay, it, no, it doesn't, there, well, there isn't anything on there that is even, even close to what means anything. Uh, my partner, Mitch Dane, you can go to his site. And then I have a website that is absolutely nothing. It's a phone number and an email. And, and, and that'll be changing at some point here soon. But, but, um, you know, you know, go down the the normal routes. Go to allmusic.com and and look at the credits. And those credits are half of what I've done. And you know, there's five of me on allmusic.com because somehow allmusic doesn't understand that I could 
actually do a rock and roll record and then do a Christian record or yeah. or a blues record. So, you know, I'm on there like four different times for different I've things. I've quit trying to organize You, you can't organize it. And nobody's in charge over there. It's a it's a train on just running down the tracks that nobody's in control of. So. But at least, at least there's something there. There's some, there some is way something. to find out a little bit about but, people. But, so. but, but don't worry. The, the website will get changed. It'll be done soon. And and like I said, there's, there's you know, we're not a commercial facility. So. Oh, no worries. I can strike that question from the, no, from the record. No, that's fine. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Vance. Really you got a pleasure, man. Really you got appreciate it. you being here. And All you right, do man. indeed rock. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. You do too. Cheers. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah, you got it, dude. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RSRockstars to 33444. Again, that's RSRockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lyd Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.